Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hello there and welcome to Tech Radio in association with Fidelity Investments. We are the number one Irish tech podcast bringing you news in tech from around Ireland and across the world every Friday evening on RTE Radio or of course you can get it first anytime you like with your podcasting app from Apple or Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. Fidelity Investments, they specialise in fintech innovation and are hiring for tech roles in Ireland right now. If you are an online worker or you kind of want to have that kind of freedom in your life, you can find out how to virtually join their team at fidelityinvestments.ie. My name is Dusty Rhodes. This is episode 865 and joining me as always is Niall Kitson, our editor-in-chief. The the big story, I suppose, the the local one is a sad one, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, we have so many stories to get through. Um, Yeah, we'll 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 start with one that is that is indeed very sad, and that is the the closure of Carphone Warehouse in Ireland. Um, It's about five hundred jobs have been lost, um, and it's it's not so much a case of you know people are showing up in the morning and all the branches are shuttered. Uh, It's a case of they've decided not to reopen. And it's not quite out of the blue because it's something they did in England last mm. year where the entire retail presence was shut down. And I think it was around 3000 people lost their jobs uh, then. So it's kind of a, a statement that came out on the Carphone Warehouse website by the um, by the owners, which is Dixon's Carhouse, who also own uh, Curry's PC World, uh, said this is a, a realignment of our business. Uh, we did this in England. Uh, so it's a case of, you know, we're just not reopening our stores. So uh, it's a it's a very sad time for uh, an awful lot of people. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, that they had their their physical locations and their in-store, their in-stores uh, as well. So unfortunately, uh, uh, another business um, uh, closing, par- partly a result of the pandemic, partly a result of, you know, a corporate restructuring. But uh, in any case, uh, very sad. Very sad. They, they did say that uh, Curry's PC World, that there is no change there and that they will remain in business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've no, no plans there. To, to, to shut that down. And I think they'll, conti- they'll continue selling phones in uh, Curry's PC World anyway. Yeah, yeah. So there there will be, you know, mm. you, you won't be stuck for somewhere to, to buy a phone. Just Here, the, the here's a question for you. Yep. Uh, who do you think next? Do you think Vodafone? Uh, well, no, I think the operators will keep their stores. Um, I can't see any problems there because they're they're literal shop fronts, and for as long mm. as the operators have their own stores, it's kind of a, a it's almost a Starbucks effect. I don't know mm-hmm. if you're aware of Starbucks marketing or Starbucks uh, physical location policy. It's it's basically have something on every street, uh, and where your competitor is, make sure you are across the road, um, because you know. Walk-in traffic is so important. Brand visibility is so important. So I think we're we're still going to see that wherever there's a Vodafone, mm. you're going to see a three. You're going to see a Virgin. There, there's going to be a, a something right beside it. So I can't see the um, uh, operator-specific stores going mm. anywhere in the near future. But the independents uh, certainly will struggle. I know. What's what's your take on it, Dusty? Who do you think is next? 
I don't know which way it's going to swing because I think either everybody's going to go nuts with all the money that we haven't spent over the last year, 18 months or whatever, and then just splash out on going out and having a good time. And like a lot of people are saying that we are literally heading into the roaring 20s. Um, and it's just going to be a massive party between here and 2030 when well, the next I, crash happens. I think there is a, an actual point there. There is a glut of oh. saved up money out there oh. and people are going to want to spend it either on supporting local businesses or buying things that they've been putting off buying for uh, for a long time. Um, yeah. So it really feeds into sort of the rest of our stories today that people for once might not be sort of wailing and moaning as much about price as they used to. And we'll start looking towards things like longevity and, you know, will this, will this device actually complement my lifestyle as Mm. opposed to just do a job for me? Yeah, we'll we'll wait and see how it uh, ties out. The other big story of the week is, of course, Apple had their big uh, spring, uh, spring loaded Reloaded. What was that? Yeah, spring loaded. And (laughs) this is this speaks directly to the point that I made there about things fishing in with your lifestyle. And Apple, I think, is the quintessential tech brand that has that down. You know, their use of branding and design just makes all their devices look so distinctive. And I think we've hit a really interesting moment where Mm -hmm. Apple are actually deciding that. They're going to change the form factors they're playing in on top of what's going in the back of their devices, which, of course, we, we know now is is the the Apple Silicon, the, that ARM-based uh, processor mm. uh, of their own. So we have, uh, last year we had, what, the 16-inch MacBook Pro, not a 15-inch. We had a 16-inch. Uh, and this year it's the, uh, the 21-inch uh, form factor is gone. Uh, if you want to buy an iMac now, you're going to have to start at 24 inches. So, Dusty, what do you what do you make of this uh, this new design you, decision? You you make that sound really bad with the new iMac, which uh, uh, they announced. You make it you make it sound like it's terrible. Um, I think what they have done is amazing because what they've done is they've put a 24 inch screen into pretty much the same size body that they were housing a 21 and a half inch screen. So you're getting way more screen in in, in the same size. Um, they made a big thing about the back of the um, iMac. And I have to say, I do like the fact that it's flat now. You don't have that kind of bump where all the electronics are yeah. hiding behind the screen. So, it, I mean, it does look nice, right? And, and and as you say, they changed the form factor and it looks great. And they made a big thing about colours. And do you know what I mean? I'm not going to deny it. I think the colours look great. The the scheme that they have. Um, <laughs> and I I think the shape of the unit. But I don't think they're the most important things. <laughs> I think the most important things when it comes to an iMac is, hello, I'm sitting in front of it. How fast is it going to run? <laughs> and okay. will the screen be good enough? Well, Apple is really good at picking up on the small things as well that make you go, huh. And that's what they did. Yeah, they, they made a really big thing out of those little things. Nice little things. Yeah. Well, I think like they the, oversold uh, them. The braided power cable with the Ethernet. I mean, you know, it's a small thing, but it's like, that's really nice. Nice. I really like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I use a braided cable to charge my phone and it's so much better than just a plastic Mm. cable, whether it's just the aesthetics of it or the feel of it. Uh, So let's look at the colours. I mean, green, yellow, orange, pink, purple, blue, silver. You can go at Mac Classic or you can go at all these other options. And it got me thinking, right? Mm. So stop me if if you disagree with me on this. Stop. 
<laughs> Go on. So, you know, beyond sort of the gubbins that are in the back, right? Because we know the M1 is a great piece of kit. You know, you will yeah. have an option of an eight core GPU. Seven core GPU comes as standard. Uh, mm. They're claiming 200% faster graphics package, 300% faster machine learning performance yeah, uh, yeah, with yeah. a 16 core model, eight gigs of unified memory. This is, this is the stuff that we expect, right? Mm. We are in an era now of home working, right? And at least hybrid working. There's a lot of people won't be yeah. going back to offices or yeah. a lot of people will be going back to offices maybe for two days a week or three days a week. You know, the five day week, nine to five is effectively gone. Thanks to the, thanks to connectivity and thanks to the last year and a half of people being able to mm. look at their working conditions and go, do you know what? I'm just as productive as at home uh, as I am in the office. And, you know, bar the odd, you know, twice, three times weekly check in with my, with my work team. Um, we don't necessarily need to be in the room at the same time, mm. you know? So why not have something nice that I'm working on that actually won't clash with my front room that, you know, is actually quite pleasant to look at and won't stick mm. out like a sore thumb. Because I've been seeing, if you go on to any of the property websites, uh, and we all dabble, we all go in from time to time to, to see what the market is like. And very often you'll see interior photos and you'll find places that are very nicely designed. And then in the corner, there's a silver and black box. And it's, it's just, it, it's not quite that it clashes with the, with the rest of the decor, but it's just like, eh, so everything else looks really nice and coordinated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you've got an, eh. It's like all, compu all computers were beige at one stage until they turned black. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And people went, you know what? Black, that is fantastic. Now we have a range of colors that actually will sit quite nicely in your front room, depending on the decor that you have. So you can come in and people might necessarily go, Eh, they might go, oh, that's quite interesting. Um, mm. And I think it's just little things like that that I think will help people gravitate a little bit more. I mean, let's, you know, it's a, it's a four point, it's a, what is it? 4.5K display. 4K isn't good enough for these people anymore. Two Thunderbolt ports, a pair of USB-C ports. Again, stuff that we expect. Uh, and yet it's these other little things that just push it over the top. So Dusty, how much would you pay for an iMac like that? Ooh. Let's just talk about the base model, okay? Because we know no, that no, 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 once I'd... you start adding things on, it gets a bit ridiculous. Well, okay, but the base all model. Of the, you, you've mentioned all of the things, right? Essentially you're saying it's got the M1 chip in it, all right? So it is, does everything that uh, any of the MacBook uh, laptops that they uh, launched last year will do. Same chip, yeah. all right? So yeah. same capabilities, da-da-da-da, and all that kind of stuff. Couple of nice little. So, uh, what would I spend on a you know kind of? I can get the um, I can get the Mac Mini for what eight nine hundred quid. Uh, I yeah, can pick up a. Uh, I can pick up the MacBook um, Air. Yeah. For maybe say nine hundred quid, maybe a grand or somewhere like that. Um, yeah. If I want to go the MacBook Pro, you see that's where you're starting to get into the. That's where I you're spending a lot of money. That's that's you're spending two grand a lot of plus. money. No. Yeah, yeah. Needs 15, 16 plus for Mac Pro? No, I think oh, you'd make, MacBook say 1500. Pro, the current ones, the 13-inch one, you, you'll get better value from, but the 16-inch, well, like, definitely like over the, two grand. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, about, it's about 2,300 to start, I think. 16's in a league of its own, all right? I'll yeah, be going yeah. for 13-inch, all right? Uh, so around 1,500. Uh, I would expect to 
probably pay in and around that or maybe a little more for an iMac because it's a proper machine that sits on a desk. But actually, I wouldn't pay that. I would absolutely buy the MacBook Pro in preference because the MacBook Pro I can take with me places or yeah, I can yeah. move around the house or I can do this. You know, kind of why would I spend the same amount of money on something that sits in one place? And it's not even upgradable. That was one of the great things about having a desktop a com- a computer was that you could upgrade it. You could lob in a, a, a different graphics card if you wanted or put in a new yeah. hard drive, extra hard drives. You could lash in RAM. I mean, the space was there. You don't get that with this machine. Like, you know, no, so. you don't. And, and the Do Macs you know have been getting progressively of? less repairable mm. as time has oh, gone yeah. on. Yeah. What it reminds me of is uh, like an iPad Pro, literally on a stand. Yeah, well, we will we will get into that uh, soon enough as well. But uh, for me, the 21-inch iMac represented probably the best value for money on the market for a long time. And I think that was chugging in at around €1,200 to start, which put it in a pretty good place in comparison to its um, its competitors. Now, yeah. because Apple have sort of, they, they've stretched that a little bit, they, they've introduced enough differentiators between their competitors that they'll mm. be able to go, okay, well, you know, Let's just go, HP, you've got a 21-inch screen, and that that was fine mm. maybe three years ago, but look what we've yeah. managed. So they they have managed to slip in these little differentiators. So the new um, iMac, the base model, will start mm. at 1499. <laughs> now, when you say the base model, you mean the 7-core version. Yeah. Which I don't know why. Do you know what? I hate the 7-core version, right? The M1 is an A-core processor with the A-core uh, GPU with it, all right? That's what it is, okay? Mm-hmm. When you're buying a 7-core, in my head, is you're buying one of the ones that fails the quality test. Wow. And one of the cores has died. So instead of <laughs> chucking it, they put it into this machine and they say, well, it's a 7-core. And Whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong on that, I don't know. That's how it appears to me. Um, I would not spend 1,500 quid on a desktop computer. No way. Uh, are you kidding me? All right. Not for what the vast majority of people use computers for, which is spreadsheeting, uh, documents, office work, uh, doing Zoom calls, uh, looking at the Internet and all that kind of stuff. All right. The only people who would really need a high power computer are people who are working on graphics to a certain extent and definitely people who are working on video. Even audio these days, any any computer can can handle. OK, so let, let's dial it up a bit then for oh. the 8-core. The um yeah. on on both sides okay yeah eight core yeah. uh wash uh, cpu and gpu yeah what would you what would you start to pay for that uh, in a desktop uh, well i mean if it's 1500 for the dodgy seven core uh it's probably going to be an extra 200 quid is it 1700 you're, you're buying on actually 1719 mm. you've you've got the economy mm. of scale uh, d- down there no, i don't have the economy <laughs> of scale i've got the way apple thinks Okay, okay. Well, that's plus yeah, 200 that's, euro. Plus yeah, 200 okay. euro. <laughs> uh, uh, well, one other thing from a technical perspective uh, yeah. that is gone, uh, and it was an innovation that Apple had for a while, and it was pretty good at keeping the cost down, but clearly um, the price of SSDs has, ju- has just made it more economical, is the mm. end of the Fusion Drive uh, that is no longer with us. And uh, for those who don't remember what the Fusion Drive is, it was sort of uh, uh, your... your um, 
what your system memory was basically separated from your storage memory. So mm-hmm. the the smaller bit that you needed uh, to run the system uh, was differentiated from the stuff that you were actually storing, which meant that you you got actual you got sort of a mix of performance, like the yep. um, sort of opening things was slightly slower, but the actual performance of the machine was was pretty good. Um, yep. But that that's gone now. So you're starting with a two hundred fifty uh, sixty uh, two fifty six SSD, partly. Mm-hmm. I, I, well, largely, I'm going to say to do with the fact that most people are using cloud storage now mm. uh, for their for their first port call. Um, so I don't think that becomes as important as it was in the past. No, and even uh, I find on any of the office computers that I have, I, I don't use. I wouldn't even use a terabyte. Yeah, I wouldn't even use half cloud. a terabyte. No, I'm yeah. not using cloud. It's just everything fits in in, in that. And the only computers where I need lots of hard drive space is when I'm working with media files. Hmm. But for general office stuff or my wife's laptop or whatever, pff, need very little. Really, internal storage, even, not, not necessary because you're using two, a nice, two, two, a nice external gigs, SSD. 256 gigs is plenty. Hmm. Okay. You know? No? Yep. So that's, uh, uh, that's it. Anyways, listen, that's the uh, iMac. The other thing that you were looking forward to uh, with Apple was the, uh, the iPad Pro iPad Pro now. My you're iPad. thinking of buying one, <sighs> right? Uh, prefacing yeah. it, my my iPad is my favorite piece of hardware in, in mm. my household. I just get I get so mm. much out of it. When I saw the iPad Pro, I was like, "Yep, this is exactly where I saw the iPad going." The iPad is too convenient uh, a device, and people are using it more as a productivity tool than a uh, than a media consumption device. So mm. I was like, okay, this is definitely the way the iPad is going to go. Doesn't matter what the what the initial presentation was, you know, it is going to become an all-purpose productivity device. Apple pretty much admitted as much when they released the iPad Pro um, and basically did everything that you could get with the, you know, existing iPad only slapped on a massive price tag and uh, you know, a whole load of very expensive peripherals. So I could go out tomorrow and I could buy a reasonably priced um, iPad and stick a third-party, um, uh, whatchamacallit, keyboard onto it and uh, have a very happy life. Right? If you want to do it the Apple way, uh, you will have a bigger screen, uh, a better screen, a better processor. Uh, the M1 has finally landed. You get a lot more uh, storage uh, you mm-hmm. can get up to two terabytes uh, on the uh, on the new model. That's crazy, isn't it? In, in, yeah. in a tablet. In a tablet, you can get up to sixteen gigs of memory. Again, mm-hmm. that trounces uh, most uh, laptops and yeah. even quite a few PCs on the market. Um, the new twelve point nine inch version has five G support. You know, Apple really thinking ahead in, in, on these things. Um, so. How much would you start? Would you pay for a machine like that? Now, I think a Pro is absolutely very well titled on this particular iPad uh, because mm. it is very much a professional machine. Yeah. And it's not going to be your average person buying it, I don't think. I think it's going to be a company that's buying it. Uh, a company that they've pitched it as sort of creative professionals as well. There you go. That's what I'm saying. People are making money out of this one way or the other, all right? Yeah. Or a company's paying for it or whatever it happens to be. Uh, so I think, you know, kind of that strikes me as being, you know, kind of as powerful as the iMac. Um, but it's even more portable than a laptop. Um 
I'm thinking in the two grand mark. Actually, no. Uh, the base 128 gig model will set you back 1229 euro for the iPad. Wow. Pro. That's, okay. not, that's not bad. Uh, bear in mind that their peripherals now are, are ridiculously overpriced uh, as well. But let's let's just take the base model on its own. 1229 euro, I think, is actually quite reasonable. Um, so that is the smaller model. Now, let's, let's go a bit mad. Uh, actually, sorry, the 11-inch model starts at 909. And right. the uh, the bigger one starts at twelve ninety nine, so I, I think that's pretty good value, uh, all told. I'd be yeah. I'd be happy enough with that. Um, so, yeah, if, yeah, as I say, if somebody else is buying it for you, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, as as in your employer, or if yeah. you look for yourself, that you know it's a business expense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've done, I've done, you would be more in a situation where you'd be going out and buying that out of your. Um, I've already paid my tax on that money <laughs> wages. Yeah, and yeah. This, this is post paying the rent, paying the mortgage, uh, paying the food bill. This is what I have left mm. money. Would you spend 1,220 uh, of those euros on this new machine? Well, this is the thing. W- would I let ah. it become my primary machine? Uh, that's, that's a very good and difficult question to ask and answer because, you know, in my house, I have my laptop, I have my iPad, I have my smartphone, uh, and they're getting better all the time. We have a, we have a, an additional tablet in the house as well. Yep. Um, that gets, uh, and they all get use. They, they all get pretty good usage uh, throughout the day. So would I sacrifice any one of them? Uh, no, because they all do different things for me. If I'm out and about, my iPad will indeed do the job of a basic laptop. If I'm at home, my 15-inch laptop is my primary work machine. Uh, you know, smartphone is a smartphone, and a smaller tablet is is nice just for, for that basic media consumption. Uh, so I hate to split hairs and say they all do different things, but they actually all do different things. So no, you're not going to spend that kind of money on it. <laughs> <laughs> after all that, after all that, after let's all that. let's talk about something that uh, that we can all afford. Uh, I hope from Apple uh, with their announcement yesterday, and these are the Apple Air Tags. <laughs> really, really bringing down the tone there, Dusty. Uh, an Air Tag, yeah. No, bas- I'm not actually because a, a I actually tooth transmitter that will say where your stuff is. Guys, what has happened in the world where I'm the one who thinks that this is a cool idea from Apple and you're the one slating it? It's it's crazy. I'm not, I'm not slating it. I'm just saying it is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah, those tiles and the air tags and stuff like that. I mean, they're great. And you're right. It is essentially just, it's a tag. You tap it onto something and if you lose it, then you can get, use your phone to find that particular tag wherever it happens to be. If you're in the house or somewhere near it, the phone will be able to pick up a signal from it and direct you to it with Mm. arrows and little voices and pictures and AR and all kinds of funny stuff. Um, If you have lost it somewhere else, what it'll do is it will check in with the network. And I think this is where it's interesting because Tile do the same thing. Um, Tile are the original tags, if you like, uh, independent company, and they work on Bluetooth, same as the Apple AirTags, right? Yeah. but the tile tags will find a Bluetooth signal and identify itself. And then somehow if that Bluetooth other other Bluetooth device has got internet connection, it makes its way back to a central server. Mm. So tile is able to tell you the location of where your thing is. Okay. The Apple tag does the same thing, mm. but only with Apple devices. Right. Right. There has to be a catch, doesn't there? 
Well, that's what I'm saying. You're, you're tied into that. Now, in the States, it's kind of, it's not so bad, all right? Because the iPhone market and the Apple market in America is just so much bigger, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, here in Ireland, not everybody has an iPhone. Lots of people do, but not everybody does. It's far from the dominant um, thing, like, you know. Oh, so I just kind of thought that was, a, uh, that, was, that was an interesting thing. But the way it does is actually uh, quite nice, Um it does what the my tile does. I think it compares very well uh, price-wise. Uh, it's a very rugged little thing. It's water dust resistant. Uh, there's a battery in it. Last year you can change it. D- cheap battery that you can buy down in Tesco or whatever. Um, and another thing I like about it is they're very keen on the privacy side of things. So no location data or history is stored on the tag itself. Hmm. It will literally just send out a ping to say, here's where I am now. And they yeah. don't store a list of those things. So that's kind of good. But as I say, it only works with, you know, uh, uh, other other iPhones or, or, or other Apple things. Oh, OK, so for, for all your scepticism, uh, how much would you pay for them? I wouldn't bother. You wouldn't bother? OK. No, I just wouldn't bother with any of them. I, I haven't. I've lived so far. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, well, for those who yeah. are interested, they're 35 euro each or you can get a pack of four for about 120 euro. Okay, and finally, uh, for our look at what Apple are up to, uh, podcasts, they've brought out a brand new... Oh, sorry, no, I'm, I'm we, we, telling we you, got a Apple TV. Yeah, Apple, Apple TV, TV which, forgetting about. Which, is, yeah. which actually got a pretty good, uh, pretty good up, upgrade. Uh, the, the iPhone and iPhone mini uh, got, got purple. Big whoop. Um, okay, so Apple 4K TV got a got a new upgrade. Uh, we have 32 and 64 gig uh, versions. Um, we have high frame rate playback of 60 frames per second, which is which is quite nice. Um, but what everybody is talking about is the new remote control, uh, which basically takes um, a, a, a big leaf out of the uh, the classic um, touch wheel uh, iPod interface. Um, and it has that lovely silver finish of the, uh, what was it, second, third generation Apple TVs that I'm very fond of. Um, so basically, you, you've got a sort of, it's not quite a click wheel, it's, it's a press wheel with um, uh, regular controls, play, pause, volume up, volume down, mute, yada, yada. Uh, always a very nice piece of kit. And, you know, I have noted, we both have noticed the price on it creep up over time uh i remember when i got my third generation one i think they were around 119 euro uh mm. it's it's a proven product at this stage they've, they've got content to back it up as well so mm. you know you're looking at 199 euro for the 32 gig model 219 for the 64 gig model ah. now the catalog is is the best on the market uh amazon might might argue the case with that um, uh, I'll argue the case with uh, on that. With the camp, the Apple catalog for Apple TV is the best on the market. Well, they've also got the the apps, like they they've got what the yeah. Disney Plus app, and uh, they don't have the WWE Network. Actually, they, that that moved to okay. Peacock. Do they ha- do they have the the Netflix app on it? They do. Okay, because Netflix is good. Uh, uh, you've got your independent movies app, which you really like. Is that on that? Actually, Mubi fell off uh, Apple no. TV for reasons. And for some reason, it does not stream well either. It's a disaster uh, mm. in that respect. So great catalog, but but terrible streaming capability, uh, mm. which is very annoying. Um, yeah, so... I don't know. I, 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 I wouldn't go near it. I get a Roku box. Um, yeah, you're probably right, yeah. But Roku sits with everybody. Do you know what I mean? It works yeah. with Google. You can get an Apple TV app. Uh, and it's not necessarily about, for me, 
I think I get a really good picture. I yeah. mean, how much better can the picture be? I, they, I know they go on about 4K and how great it is and all that kind of stuff. But I keep harping back to this little thing where somebody had an 8K screen. They were doing a demo of it, right? Uh, and at the end of the demo, they went, it's all pants, really, because look, you see that pixel there? Yeah. <laughs> that pixel is dead and nobody noticed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, OK, fair enough. 4K is good, is, 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 is as good as I need. Uh, but I like the independence of Roku and stuff like that as well, like, you know, so that you're able to get all of the services and have a great choice of it. There's always kind of something to... <laughs> It's always something to watch. It's just neither of us can agree on what to watch. That's the problem now. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. Yeah, okay, it's not like fifty-seven yeah. channels and nothing on. It's like there's too much on, and neither of us want to watch the same thing. So uh, yeah, and, and <laughs> you know, there's more and more stuff that's coming out, and it's purely data-driven. You look at things. Netflix, I think, is particularly bad at it, and you can see that that they've clearly just looked at what people are watching and they flung something together on the quick. I mean, there's hmm. so much true crime up there. You know, it's like they went, oh, people are still watching Making a Murderer. Let's just do more and more of that to, yeah. to the point that it's it's just tiresome. Uh, so, yeah, fi- fi- right. find a new trick, Netflix. Indeed. Now, uh, just a quick note. If you're listening to us with RTE Radio, we're going to have to take our leave uh, of you for now uh, because we've only got a half hour on the air with uh, RTE, unfortunately. But we will be back again uh, next Friday at the same time. And of course, if you want to catch up on the rest of the conversation about Apple, we've still got uh, stuff to talk about. Uh, making money out of Facebook, uh, Mars, uh, interesting things to do with your old Galaxy phones, if you got it, and um, how you can um, shop at Amazon supermarkets without having to pay for it. I think and that's all still to come on the podcast which you can get uh, by uh, looking us up Tech Radio Ireland on uh, Spotify on Apple on Google on Amazon or wherever you get your podcasts now that's the RTE people gone Uh, so Apple Grant so we've been through uh, Apple TV uh, we've done the iPad Pro the iPhone has got new colours or something like that it's it's not really a big no Uh, Apple AirTags and and of course podcasts is the other thing now this is this is Tim Cook and he literally gave it I'd say a minute yeah but but it's a huge thing for us For anybody who's in the podcasting sphere, uh, it is, I think, more so than uh, anything else. I think, though, it's going to benefit people who listen to podcasts because I think it is making it easier and more attractive for people who are professionally in the market to be able to get even more high quality stuff out there. All right. And I'm thinking about, you know, kind of NPR in the States, uh, Gimlet, uh, Wondery, these kind of production houses who do really good crime thrillers and Mm. narrative uh, um, uh, podcasts and everything that people are are happy with. Um, I think it will be easier for them to market their stuff on the app and I think it's also going to be interesting the fact that you will be able to pay within your Apple podcast app for extra content should you want to have it. Okay so how exactly does this work because we distribute for free uh, yeah. on all the all the major platforms so mm-hmm. what is uh, Apple potentially offering us as podcast creators? Well, as podcasts, well, nobody cares what we... Uh, I'll, I'll give you, very quickly, as podcast creators, uh, if anybody wants to see behind the curtain here at Tech Radio. Um, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> we, we just get to be on another platform and promise no. people extra stuff. 
No, it's not that. It's I think, you know, what we do at Tech Radio, we have our community of tech people, which we love and tech is what we do. And you and I personally enjoy doing the podcast. So it's just it's share. All right. Mm. It's not necessarily yeah. a money thing for us. All right. Um, however, uh, Tech Central do an awful lot of really good webinars, talks, uh, meetings, a lot of stuff that would be kind of behind a paywall or behind closed doors. OK, if we were to repackage that stuff and make it available as a podcast and people could buy it per podcast if they wanted for like 99 cent or 69 cent yeah at least you, that do, way do you know we're what this able reminds to, me of go on when, when podcasts were were starting out uh, now when i say starting out i mean before they were in any sense what they are when we were well, starting listen, we out, were there when we were we, there we yeah, were exactly. there like the, we were 2006 what, or whatever it was yeah, yeah. uh Ricky Gervais was doing a podcast that you paid for by the episode in the exact mm. same way you'd buy a song on iTunes. Yes. You could not get away with that kind of model now, but that's that's what he was doing and that, oh. that was proving very popular. Well, you see, that's what I think is interesting. Um, we, we had a, a podcast as well back in the day, uh, 2006, 2000. We were doing it with Ian uh, Dempsey mm. and it was for a targeted Irish people who live abroad. Hmm. Uh, and what do we call it? The crack, I think we called it. And the idea behind that was to do it as a, a, a sales thing where they get an update on what's happening in Ireland or whatever. And it costs like a euro a week. Hmm. That was it. Nice and cheap. Um, but the problem that we had with it was how do you monetize it? Because we had to set up a different website and then we had to get credit card, all that sort, which wasn't easy back then. Um it was complicated. We had to have it behind a ball. You, you didn't get the podcast via iTunes. You had to listen on a on a website or whatever. It was just, eh, all right? Yeah. And uh, the same thing, uh, what, what we were talking with Ricky Gervais, he was selling it in the iTunes store, but he was the exception to the rule, wasn't he? Yeah. He was Ricky Gervais. I mean, he still is. He's one of the biggest uh, entertainment names on the planet Earth, like, you know? Yeah. But I think now, if we were to do something like that, or if we were to have a Tech Central thing where we were to do a feature with a featured speaker who was giving a course, do you know what I mean? Like, if we mm. had somebody in who was saying, well, I'm going to teach you in 20 minutes how to do this task. Yeah. And they're a world leader at it. And it was 69 cents for the episode. I think people would just click on buy. Yeah, kind of a masterclass kind of a thing. Whatever it happens to be. And I just think that that is going to change the industry. I don't know how it's going to change the industry, but I think that it could be a benefit to the industry. It could be a benefit to the listeners as well. And of course, I another think, thing that, that we see as mm. well is the, the Patreon model where uh, folks chip in whatever whatever they want. Yep. And they get either additional content or content early or that kind of thing. Yeah. And that actually will be much easier to do now if you if you are an Apple user and it's in your phone instead of having to go off to the Patreon website and to access things in a different way and all that kind of you just do it there where you get your podcast. So that's why I think it's going they're going to make things a lot easier for not just the creators but it's going to make things a lot easier for listeners. And I think because of that, it's going to increase the overall quality of what's available. Mm. Which is which is a huge thing with Apple. Mm. They always want to be associated with quality. The, the days of, you know, the, the guy recording a podcast on his phone and throwing it up on iTunes. I, I, mm. They really do, don't want that yeah. kind of association yeah. anymore. Now, there is a but. Okay. There's always a but. All right. And I think this is interesting about Apple going on about how evangelical they are and they're fighting the good fight and everything like that. If you want to partake in such a scheme as a creator with Apple, you need to pay a fee every year. 
Uh-huh. Now, it's only $20, but still, you need to pay a fee. And they will also take 30% of uh, whatever you sell. So that's traditional app developer rates. Exactly. All right. Mm. And what I think is really interesting is they go, of course, they don't say we keep 30%. They go, you get 70%. <laughs> right. M- minus tax. Yeah. It's like, hang on a minute. Hang on. Apple are going to are gonna represent me. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> in tax affairs. <laughs> I don't think yeah, so. Think Listen, not. loads of loads of other, we're done on Apple, are we? Oh yeah, let's move on. Uh, plenty of other things going on in the world. Firstly, bravo, congratulations to Ingenuity, the NASA helicopter on Mars. It flew. It flew. I actually I came across a, a very interesting comment on this the, the other day. Right, it's like if any other country went to Mars, they would send up a balloon. Right, they're they're easily done. They're a proven concept. Just send up a balloon. Uh, the Americans went to Mars and they sent a drone, right? Kind of much more complicated device. Loads of things could go wrong with it. And uh, the pundit was asked, okay, why, so why didn't they just send a balloon? And he basically says, because America. <laughs> That's what they do. <laughs> they, they had to do it bigger and better than anyone else. It had to be a drone. Uh, I, I can't agree with that. <laughs> no. I can't agree with that. I think a drone is way more controllable than a balloon is. And believe me, uh, you don't want to be have a balloon going out of control when it's, you know, kind of six months flying time away. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. Balloon won't need <laughs> a software update, though. Oh, meow. Other interesting article out during the week in a scientific reports uh, publication. Uh, somebody has done a study as to how many humans it would take to colonise Mars. The I thought minimum, you were about to say how many humans would it take to change a light bulb? Well, um, how many humans would it take to colonise Mars? What's the minimum? Okay. Uh, jeepers. Right. Uh, based on the last days of Mars... Or last days on Mars. Uh, I'm going to say about a dozen. 110. 110 is what they say. Okay. Now, is that sort of getting a a pipeline of people to come and go? Or is that, you know, creating a self-sustaining little society? Self-sustaining little society that will be there that would essentially land... All right. Mm. And then they just have to fend for themselves. There will be no more supplies coming from Earth. Wow. Okay. So you're stuck with the same 100 people. Yep. Hope your conflict resolution skills are are pretty good. Yeah, 110 people. And uh, interestingly, the uh, starship that Elon Musk is um, building holds 100 people. Right. So do you do you send over like couples like in Moonraker or, you know, what do you I do? think you'd have like Moonraker, the, the, your evil little fantasy there, is it? <laughs> <laughs> of course, they would have to send couples. They would have to send couples. Otherwise, how are you going to? There was an interesting uh, video that I was watching and they were going through that about, you know, the first people settle and this, that and the other. Da, da, da. But one of the things was first baby born on Mars. And I mm. went, you know what? That actually is, I don't know if we'll see it in our lifetime, but our children could see it in their lifetimes. Yeah, true, true. And that actually, because if that uh, baby is born on Mars, it would actually be a Martian. Yeah. And what, what do you name the first baby born on Mars? It's not a joke like, but I mean, what would you name them? I mean, Tom. Do you... <laughs> Jim. 
<laughs> there you go Grant uh, all the stuff going oh listen we have to talk about Digital Rights Ireland because I think it's oh, an yes. amazing story we, we have to call them and get somebody on right mm. uh, Digital Rights Ireland are taking a mass legal action against uh, Facebook over this data breach mm-hmm. have you checked to see if your phone number was included in the data breach I haven't actually and do, do you know what? how does one go about doing that well, I didn't give my phone number to Facebook because I refuse. Oh, well, I had to recently and I'm very annoyed about that. Uh, my wife, of course, is a little bit more, oh, they just want my number, I just put it in. Of course, she was got. Yeah. Um, so she's one of the victims, uh, shall we say. Uh, anyway, what Digital Rights Ireland are doing is they've started a website called facebookbreach.eu and they're looking for people across the EU who have had their number and their personal details um, put out onto the internet by this uh, latest breach from Facebook. And they're going to, the plan is to take a class action against Facebook in court. Right. Okay. I'm thinking of, uh, of signing up for this on behalf of my wife. Because it was her number. I, I'm just really interested to see what the process would be. Um, I'm, and I'm also quite angry about it, to be honest. If it was my number, I'd be double I would be spitting hellfire by now. But I'm angry about it because they forced me to give me give them my phone number. And they can't be trusted with it. And after they forced me to do it, they proved that they can't be trusted with it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, that's it. Anyway, we, we'll find out more about that. Uh, what else is going on in the world? Uh, oh, just very quickly, Galaxy or uh, Samsung Galaxy. I've got a, a new upcycling um, project on the go where mm-hmm. they are trying to get people to reuse their old phones, old smartphones that are hanging around the house. OK, mm-hmm. now a lot of people will do that. A lot of people that we would know would certainly do that. But what they're doing is that they are giving you software via their smart things lab. OK, which mm-hmm. you would essentially reformat the entire phone so mm. that it will be used as an Internet of Things device rather than as a mobile phone. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So it's structured that way so that uh, it will last a rare old long time. It won't use half of the things that it, that it needs. It doesn't connect to the cellular network or anything like that. Uh, it doesn't keep the screen on all the time. It's all optimized for old hardware to be used as an Internet of uh, Things device. So you could use it as a, uh, a light detector, actually, was one of the things. And it could be just something to just sit there in the corner of the house and it just detects when it's too dark. And you know in this country, okay, you've got sunset, but then you've also got days where it's just darn dark at three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Especially true. winter, you know, click on the lights and stuff like that. Or you can use a baby monitor, a TV remote control could be another one. All these kind of little things. Uh, Galaxy Upcycling, if you want to Google that. And the last thing I have for you now this week is uh, Amazon Palm Reading. Oh, that sounds good. Amazon Palm Reading. Amazon uh, Palm okay. Reading. Enigmatic. Hit me up. <laughs> Okay. Uh, basically, this is really simple. Okay. Okay, I'm listening. You link your credit card with your palm print. Okay. What kind of crazy then, is this? Th- th- listen to me. Listen. When you go to an Amazon store, you know they've got these Amazon grocery stores in Seattle now. Okay, where you just walk in and you just pick up whatever it is you want and you leave and yeah. it automatically knows that it's you and how much you have and it charges you accordingly okay um, they've at the checkout thing if your palm is registered you can literally just wave your palm on a sensor ding payment taken yeah. okay. so the whole thing alright now with devices and with mobile phones and stuff like that is your thumbprint opens the phone okay so what if your thumbprint was associated with a credit card 
and you literally just went around and you just literally thumbs up and to make a payment. Wow. There's the future. <laughs> and you heard it first on tech radio. <laughs> now, thanks as always. Good. Uh, lots to chat about in the news today. Just to wrap up a quick word about our show sponsor, Fidelity Investments. Uh, they're a global leader in fintech innovation and they are hiring for tech roles here in Ireland. The best bit is that you can join them virtually and work from the safety of your own home and who knows, maybe even on your own new iMac. <laughs> in whatever colour you wish. If you are an online worker or looking to have that kind of freedom, you can find out more about how to virtually join Fidelity Investments at their website, fidelityinvestments.ie. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Right, let's get into our interview for this week. And it's all about books. And what makes a classic book? Is it plot, the characters, the number of awards that it's won? All those things help. Well, there are thousands of reasons why some books endure and many are lost. We simply just don't have enough time to understand them as examples of their genre or place in history. Dr. Justin Tonra is a lecturer in English at NUI Galway, and he is working in a way to use big data to help us understand how stories from every genre from all over the world are evolving from their style of language right down to their titles. He had a chat with Niall Kitson. One of the problems we find when we look at what's regarded as the literary canon is that it is quite a limited body of work. I mean, for a lot of people, it doesn't necessarily represent who they are. For example, if you were a woman in the 19th century, you're not going to get an awful lot of use out of, you know, uh, the the pulp literature at the time, which might have been aimed more at sort of younger boys, if you will, the, the or later on the idea of the boys' own adventure, or who we regard as great writers now, which seem to be invariably, you know, dead white men. So how does our understanding of literature uh, come to change? So um, the idea of, of studying literature as as an academic discipline, or even thinking about about what books tell us, is is a relatively new phenomenon in uh, in, in university terms. I mean, we've had universities for eight or nine hundred years in in Europe, but we've really only brought um, literature as as a subject of study in in the last one hundred years. So, um, around the time of Figuring out how we how we should approach and, and study literature, um, many people came to um, consider that literature had a moral or an instructive um, message to to impart, and that certain good or, or valuable books um, were the means to to access these moral lessons. So, um, in designing these curricula, um, the idea of the the canon came along. So these are the, you know, the the, the valuable works from Chaucer to to Dante to um, Yeats and Joyce. These are the people whose whose works are valuable, and therefore we should we should read them. Um, so that's a mode of reading that um, that takes um, the view that literature is is is, is instructive, but it is not always. 
a mode of reading that is reflected in in the general population. So there are lots of of different ways of of um, approaching um, the study of literature and of approaching the the study of reading. So the reading canonical books is is one of those ways, but um, there are others, and distant reading is. Um, opens up certain possibilities for for new modes of of study and reading. Yeah, and when we look at the idea of distant reading, I mean, for, from my experience, there seems to have been two kind of real ways of appreciating literature. One, which I guess is a traditional skill now, which is the the idea of close reading, where you're literally taking it word by word, paragraph by paragraph, to look for the exact authorial intent and where a, a work sits within the wider canon or within, you know, why an author is writing in a certain style or what their intent is. Um, distant reading takes completely the opposite opinion, uh, but the two are, they, they're kind of interlinked. One benefits the other really, does it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very true. And um, yes, there's, there's a paradox um, between these, these two, two modes of, of reading. And close reading is really seen as, as the gold standard of, of literary criticism, where you give um, a small text or a small portion, <clears throat> excuse me, of a text, your your full forensic um, attention in order to tease out the multiple meanings that that it it might possess. So distant reading, on on the other hand, does approach um, literature at this this mass scale, and so it's brought to bear because. These are, are levels of text that no human being could could read in a, in a single lifetime. So, in some ways, you're you're getting an overview of a a large collection of novels, whether they're contained um, in the span of a century, or you might take a large collection of novels um, on a particular theme in order to apply distant reading techniques to them. But distant reading doesn't. Um, doesn't remove the possibility of close reading. So while um, the initial stages of, of distant reading might search for particular um, types of patterns that a researcher might be interested in, uh, in these large collections of text, once these patterns are discovered, then the researcher brings, um, brings more traditional close reading techniques to bear upon those results. So, yeah, you're absolutely right to say that um, that the two methods do um, inflect and supplement uh, one another, or at least um, in, in the best practice, that's what um, researchers uh, would hope to achieve. So as an academic uh, working in the digital humanities, what sort of, um, I guess, for want of a, a better term, equipment are you bringing to bear on this pro- process of distant reading, of looking at so many more books uh, than are sort of within what we regard as the the accepted canon at the moment? Because with this big data approach, you're requiring an awful lot of, you know, um, uh, for want of a better term, raw material to get to grips with. So what kind of works are you looking at now that you wouldn't have before? And how are you looking at them? So so one of the challenges to distant reading is, is getting the texts. Um, so by necessity, a lot of distant reading happens on on books that are on works that are out of copyright. So before the before the nineteen twenties, 
Um, and a lot of these have, have been digitized um, by, uh, by companies such as Google or by other academic um, organizations that whose, whose purpose is to, to gather literary works into, into databases and, um, and package them up for, for academics to, to use. So there's a combination of, of using um, databases like that, but also digitizing um, works from, from scratch in order to, to build these um, collections of, of literature that you can then um, distant read. So, I mean, one of one of the examples that, that you might take is um, from, say, a, a century like like the seventeenth century, when the the print output um, was not as uh, as large as as it would become in later centuries with with the um, the advent of industrial printing. So it's it's quite conceivable that you could still collect a lot of the literature that was um, was published in in the 17th um, century now, some literature obviously wouldn't survive but um, libraries will still hold and will have digitized um, a lot of those texts so it's quite conceivable that you could have this um, this large um, collection of texts from the 17th century and then apply a range of, of computational techniques to to try and identify um, certain patterns in them and what you want to identify is again determined by by your research interests um, so that could be anything from from very small uh, like linguistic shifts in in how we might um, how writers um, use language across the span of a century to to more uh, I guess thematic things like you could, Look for um, how representations of of a certain place, uh, for instance, might change over the course of a, of a century. So, how how might uh, London or how might uh, Dublin be be um, featured and represented in in um, the literature of, of a particular century? So I guess it's a it's a great opportunity then to use literature as an aid to history as well to to say well look this conflict was going on over here and you know what this is kind of what people were interested in reading over here whether it be uh, an escape or people looking for more information or more depth in what's happening around them. Yeah, and and the uh, the fact of of opening out the the, the canon is um, is a real feature of this as well. And very often distant, well, sometimes distant reading um, takes place uh, in, in different forms. So you, a researcher may not be looking specifically at, at the texts of, of books, but might use other associated data, such as um, a, book's, um, a book's title, a book's author, a book's um, publisher, publication dates, to look for um, patterns about the history of, of publication in, in a century. So while some of the instinctive associations were with are with understanding um, the texts of books, there are different modes of, of distant reading that can um, look at different historical phenomena as well. That sounds like a tremendous amount of metadata that has to be gathered to uh, to really get insights like that, like looking at year of publication, like looking at titles. So um, how, do, how do you go about figuring out what are the interesting data points to come up in a work? So a lot, a lot of this work is built on um, 
on previous scholarship, uh, particularly in things like the the, the history of, of the book. Um, scholarship is is full of book lists and, and catalogs and the work and labor of researchers who have gone into things like enumerating all of the books that, that are printed in, in the 17th century. So there are lots of existing, really, really valuable um, resources out there for this kind of work. And some of those have, have been digitized, um, others have not. So um, in the ones that have been digitized, you, um, you're already presented with all of these very rich um, categories of, of metadata that you can use as the basis for, for establishing your research questions. Um, but we still have, have lots of um, print resources out there that might be, um, that might be digitized and used to, um, to figure out new research questions. So when you're looking at uh, figuring out new research questions, it also gives you the opportunity to look at underserved genres or genres that have been underserved at academic level. In particular, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, say the Penny Dreadful or indeed the, the romance novel, which is which has a tremendous following to, to this day and a tremendous output as well. So will there or does there still exist uh, reticence when it comes to looking at particular genres over over others you know is there still a hierarchy that says okay look we got to keep plowing ahead in the in the contemporary novel we got to see what the history is here uh, as opposed to going do you know what we, we actually don't know an awful lot about you know the romance novel of, mm. of the 80s 70s 60s or whatever it's time to start looking at that as well i think it's um it's a lot more um democratic um, that, and that's one of the, the principles behind distant reading is really o- opening up, opening up the canon. So you will find a really wide variety of um, of research questions being applied with the, with these techniques. Um, one of the one of the really interesting um, forerunners of of distant reading was a book in the nineteen eighties called Reading the Romance by a scholar called Janice Radway, and she did a lot of kind of manual digital humanities techniques, um, building up um, databases about um, readers' receptions and responses to uh, romance novels of, of the mid-20th century. And she um, was trying to figure out what, what exactly the, the appeal um, and the value of this um, overlooked and sometimes um, mocked and castigated genre actually was. So the approach is it crosses over into, into sociology, really. It's, it's taking a, a popular phenomenon and not concerning itself too much about its literary value, but looking at its value as, as, a, as a social phenomenon. Uh, I'm also... Um, familiar with with distant reading studies that look at things like um, the dime novel, right? So the cheap, um, pulpy novel. Um, one of my colleagues uh, in, in Germany, Fotis Ioannidis, is, uh, is working on a large-scale analysis of, of these German dime novels from, from the 20th century. So, um, yeah, it's, um, I think this this um, method is is certainly um, more democratic and opens up really interesting new avenues of research into neglected 
uh, near lecture genres. One of the studies you're working on now is a, a cross-European effort uh, on computational literary studies towards sort of a, an infrastructure. Can you tell us a little bit about it? So this is a, a project that involves 13 partners from uh, across Europe. And our main aim is really to, to gather and consolidate existing resources for, for distant reading that are very often scattered uh, hither and yon across academia. So what we want to do is to, to build a kind of standard collection of, of tools and methods and services for academics who are interested in, in using these techniques. So part of that involves bringing together existing resources. Part of it um, will involve building uh, new collections of novels, including um, those in under-resourced and, and neglected European languages. And part of it will involve um, offering training um, to people who are who are interested in getting involved in these kinds of, of research um, projects, but don't um, don't have the technical expertise or don't really know where to where to begin with. Um, with this with this kind of work, a lot of this work is is interdisciplinary as well and involves people from um, literary backgrounds, people from librarianship backgrounds, and um, and computer scientists. So it's very rare to find one individual who has all of the skills necessary to to do this kind of work. So this kind of collaborative project with, with partners across Europe is, is really um, a suitable way of approaching this task. And that was Niall Kitson chatting with Dr. Justin Tonra from NUI in Galway. That's it for our show this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or listen to us each week online or Fridays, of course, with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty, and from Niall Kitson, thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand and at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.